Old Testament lesson is found in 1 Kings. We are picking up after an 18-month delay. 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 15, and then closing in chapter 14 with verses 21 through 31. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came up to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Then into chapter 14, verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. 
And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonite, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in us there is only darkness, but with you there is light, and it is in your light that you grant us by your Spirit through your Son to see light. And so we ask today that you speak. We come in all of our need, desperate to hear you. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. This fall, we plan to work through 1 Kings, tracing the reigns of the kings of Judah and Israel after Solomon. 18 months ago, we worked through the first 11 chapters detailing the rise and fall of King Solomon. That may be unfamiliar to some of you, but you can find all of that material on the website under the resources page. And as we begin, it's important to refresh a significant point about what it means to read the book of Kings well. Because in Kings, we read history. History about rulers of the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. It is history that chronicles their fidelity and their failures. It's history that chronicles their virtues and also their vices. It's history that chronicles their obedience and also their gross disobedience. This is not romanticized Pollyanna history by any stretch of the imagination. It's rather self-reflective, critical history. And to appreciate the word that God speaks, the word that God has for us to hear as we come and we read, we have to resist the temptation to whitewash the story making Israel something that it was not. And we also have to resist the temptation to write off Israel, dismissing them as if this is completely irrelevant because it happened then and there. Rather, God invites us today to listen and to listen carefully, to reflect on the virtue and the vice, to reflect on the fidelity and the failures, to reflect on the obedience and the disobedience. And in doing so, he invites us to learn about him. He invites us to learn about his ways with his people. And he invites us to learn about ourselves. Yes, this is history. But it's no mere history. It's history actually written with a prophetic edge. And even the ancient Israelites, when they collected together these books, considered the historical books to be part of the prophetic books. This is history designed to teach us and to lead us, to draw us to God himself. And in chapter 12, we come to Rehoboam. He is the son of the great King Solomon. He followed his father to the throne of Israel. And under Solomon, Israel, the Old Testament church, sailed into the heights, 
completing the construction of the temple and also significantly expanding the reach of the empire. And they also descended into the depths of failure, embracing idolatry. It is a complex and a very complicated legacy left behind by Solomon, a man with a divided heart. And through him, and particularly through his son Rehoboam, we are given a close-up view of what compromise looks like. And so God speaks today to the church a word about renewal and revival. And it's essential that we understand very thoroughly that we come to familiarize ourselves with compromise. If we want to avoid it, and if we want to escape it, then we have to understand it. And this is why we've been given this history in all of its sordid details. And so through Rehoboam, we see three things about compromise that we need to search out. The first is we discover the root of compromise. Secondly, we will see the results of that compromise. And finally, we'll see the character of compromise. And so ahead of coming to the Lord's table, we'll very briefly consider these three things today. First, the root of compromise. Solomon is off the scene. He has been dead for some time now, but he continues to exercise an outsized influence on the events of chapters 12 through 14 in Rehoboam's reign. And this is indicated to us very subtly by the writer of Kings. But if you follow the summary of Rehoboam's reign in chapter 14, in those 10 verses, in verse 21 and in verse 31, there is the mention of one particular woman. Her name is Naamah the Ammonite. She is Rehoboam's mother, and this, of course, means that she was one of Solomon's wives. And she stands there twice mentioned, which actually stands out in all the book of Kings. It's really unusual. Why is Rehoboam's mom being mentioned? Are they attempting to cast shade on her in some way? But actually, it's not an attack on Naamah, but rather it is a brazen, very straightforward critique of Solomon. He's very much in this narrative. Because in Deuteronomy 17, if you were to follow into verse 17, God instructs the Israelite king not to multiply wives. And yet we learn in Kings that Solomon had 700 of them. You can sufficiently say that he broke that commandment. He multiplied wives. But then also in, in chapter 7 of the book of Deuteronomy, Israelite men were not to take foreign wives. And they were not to take foreign wives because there was a threat that the false gods of the nations around them would be smuggled in and introduced and corrupt the purity of the church. And regrettably, Solomon breaks both of these commandments, that he multiplied wives and he actually multiplied foreign wives. And sadly, in 1 Kings 11, we learned that his heart did not remain true to the Lord, that in his old age... He was untrue and embraced idolatry. And so Rehoboam, we learn here, continues in that same disastrous path that he follows the example of Solomon. 
In chapter 14, we read that Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. We read in verse 22. And so though technically the sins of Judah, the southern kingdom, which was broken apart from the north, the southern kingdom, the implication is clear that they were led to do worse than all the generations prior to them because they were being led by the king. And the logic of the book of First and Second Kings is simply this, as goes the king, so goes the people. And so his father, who had chased after Naamah's gods, all of that has great consequence, and it becomes the root of a breakout into idolatrous worship, turning from the true God. And friends, this is the root of compromise in Rehoboam. It's the sin inherited from previous generations and small compromises that gains momentum and then metastasizes. It's the root of compromise that grows. And so the question that presses us today is what exactly do we need to do? And the answer is also clear. It's clear, particularly from the life of Solomon, that we have to attend very carefully to what we love. In chapter 3, verse 3, we are told that Solomon loved the Lord. It's an honest statement. But then in chapter 11, we also learn that Solomon loved his wives. And it says that he clung to them, all 700. And we get a very complicated picture, not of an early Solomon and a late Solomon. But what we gain is a picture of a divided Solomon. A compromised man. A man like you and a man like me. With divided loyalties and a disordered heart disordered set of loves. And friends, this is why we have to pay very careful attention to our loves. Because what we love is what we serve, and what we love is ultimately what we worship. Augustine, in writing the Confessions, says this about our loves. Listen carefully. He says, an object by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. He was talking about the physics of oil and water. And so if you pour oil and water together, the lighter object will rise to the top and the heavier object will sink. It moves to its place. But then consider what he says. He says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. And so what he's arguing here is that what directs us is our weight That what carries us in life is what we actually love, what we invest ourselves in. And so, friends, we can have our outward professions. Solomon did great things in the name of the Lord, but what he truly loved ended up directing his life. And so we have to exercise care, guarding our hearts, inquiring about what really captivates us, what we love because our loves in this life carry us and direct us. And this is the only way to protect ourselves from that root of compromise. But secondly, we also see the result of compromise in Rehoboam's life. 
Israel gathered at Shechem, it was a sacred place, and they gathered to make Rehoboam king of all of Israel, all the 12 tribes. And the people asked Jeroboam to come back from Egypt and to represent them, to bring a request to Rehoboam. And the request had to do with the heavy yoke that Solomon had put on the people. Now the yoke refers to two things most likely. It refers to the governmental impositions put on the people by Solomon, most likely in the forms of taxes and labor. But Solomon had put a heavy yoke on the people so that he could build his empire. In verse 4, the people request some relief from these burdens. And then on the backside of that request, they promise to be good servants if only the yoke can be lightened. Rehoboam sends the men away for three days, he says, then come back to me. In the meantime, he takes counsel, and he takes counsel with the salty dogs, the old guys with the experience. And then he takes counsel with his peers, the young men, around 40. And then he decides to go with the counsel of the young men. The interaction is fascinating Ian Proven, one of the commentators consulted with this week, draws the parallel of the interaction to Exodus chapter 5, where Moses approaches Pharaoh and asks that he lighten the burden and allow the people of Israel to gather and to worship God for three days. And Pharaoh responds not by lightening the burden and allowing them three days of no labor, but rather he doubles down and he says no straw and made the brick production continue. And friends, it is this parallel in which God opens for us and allows us to see what the result of compromise is. Because you can see that, yes, the people of Israel are in the promised land. They are not in Egypt. But what is happening is that Rehoboam doubles down. He says, instead of using whips, I will use the scorpion, which was a type of very brutal and cruel whipping. And he is restoring here the dynamics of captivity. That yes, they are free. Yes, they are in the land. But they are now being re-subjected. They are being enslaved. And friends, this is what compromise does. We oftentimes go outside of the counsel of God, his claim on our lives, what he commands us to do. We think according to our own wisdom. We find counselors who will affirm what it is that we exactly want to hear. And when we do, we think there is life and we think there is freedom on the other side. And what God says to us today is that it's foolishness, it's captivity, it's bondage to go back that way. That freedom and life are had in deliverance and listening to God and in sending his son Jesus. He brings us up out of that bondage, out of that slavery, out of all of that servitude in which we formerly lived in. And yet, sometimes we oddly want to return to it, thinking that it's good and there's something for us there. It's the descent into slavery once again. That's the result of these fatal compromises that we make. But finally, we also see the character of this compromise. 
After receiving the advice from the two groups, Rehoboam did follow the counsel of the young men who spoke very crassly, very rashly. And in verse 14, he then says, my father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Then tragically in verse 15, we read the somber words. The king did not listen to the people. Their request and their promise to serve him was rejected. He would have them serve them, him by his authority and might. The tragedy is that the Israelite king was not to be a king like the kings of the nations around him. He had a different claim upon his life. He was to exercise rule in a different way. But Rehoboam acted just like the kings of the nations. He assumes that the ruled exist for the ruler. That it was the prerogative of the king to subject his servants for them to do whatever he wanted. He believed that greatness comes from being served by others. He did not believe that greatness came from serving others. And so Rehoboam knows nothing but his own self-interest. He's a man directed by self-regard. And friends, this is the character of compromise. All the fruit of the idolatry, all the fruit of not listening, the results of that compromise, it all builds into this character of a completely self-absorbed person who only hears his own counsel. And friends, we can look at that history and we can cast a shadow on it. But it's critical for us to also recognize that we're all born with that same self-interest within us. As the sons and as the daughters of Adam, we have inherited that same self-interest. And the question for us today is how do we begin to break that down? And the answer is found in the passage because the only way to break it down is to experience something different, to know something different. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is approached by his disciples, James and John, and they were asking him whether they could have a seat at his right hand and his left hand when Jesus came in his glory. They were perceiving that Jesus was about to do something really big, and they wanted to be in on it. They wanted the seats of honor. It was not a modest request. Jesus then responds and tells them that they don't know what it means to sit on his right and his left. And then he says this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, effective leadership comes from below, not from above. And the only way for us to get there is actually be, to be served by the one who comes down who subjects himself, the son of man, who came not to be served, but to serve. And his service was 
a gift of his life, being a ransom for many, giving himself in our place. And friends, the only way out of Rehoboam's crisis is not for us to look upon it in disgust, to think that Rehoboam is somehow just disgusting and unworthy, but to recognize that we participate in the same fatal disease. We have that same self-interest. But yet God, through Jesus, he frees us from that in serving us, and he calls us into a different example in a different way, in a different freedom that's not captive to these things. And so, friends, the way to undo that self-serving power and that self-serving ambition, that character of compromise, is to know the beauty of Jesus, the one who serves us. And so we see here in Rehoboam's life the compromises of Israel. We see all of the blindness. We see all the amnesia. We see all of the forgetfulness. We see all the generational sins as they build momentum and actually grow. We see the faults and the failures. We see the weaknesses and the proclivities. And friends, we need to feel them ourselves if we're to hear what God speaks and says to the church today. And as we do so, it's proper to then ask the question, is there any hope? And many people, as they read the book of Kings, just grow more and more discouraged and depressed because gradually the weight begins to grow and bear down. But there's something interesting to note here in chapter 14. In verse 21, as we are actually told about Rehoboam's sins, Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And in the midst of all the catastrophe, in the midst of all the chaos and the darkness, this word is spoken that the Lord chose to put his name there. Because that promise is never extended to the northern tribes that were broken off at this point. But that promise is extended to the tribe of Judah, to the city of Jerusalem. Because the promise is extended to the sons of David. And friends, this is the great light. That even in the midst of all of the darkness and the compromise and the sadness that we read about in Kings. Is that we have a God who's determined... We have a God who's persistent. And we have a God who actually has a plan that we learned that this was actually from him because he has a greater purpose that he is working out. And even though the sons of David were corrupt and they were compromised, and even though they were in so many ways filled with, with vices, and it seems like all of God's plan is lost, and yet the truth is, is that God's grace through his promise that he would bring one son of David, one son of David who would come and prevail, one son of David who would bring blessing not to one little corner of the earth, but blessing to the nations, a church filled with Jew and Gentile alike, one son of David, namely Jesus. And friends, and so we also learn in this complicated book of the prevailing grace of God 
the beauty of that grace and coming into the world in Jesus and what he's done for you and what he's done for me. That we have right standing with God to free us from all of this compromise, to free us from all of this division and to lead us out of our own house of bondage on the long road to permanent and true life. Friends, this is the way out of compromise is to know the true king, the true son, He's come for you. He's come for me. Let's ask for his help. Gracious Father, we recognize that you have sent your son, our Lord Jesus, and he has come into the world on our behalf. And it is in him that we can approach you. We acknowledge our own unworthiness, but even more so we acknowledge him who gave himself as a ransom on behalf of many. This morning we pray for our city, we pray for our nation, we pray for our world, asking that the peoples of the earth will know you and walk in your ways, calling upon the name of Jesus. Draw men and women into the knowledge of your son to know the gift of life and forgiveness proclaimed in the gospel. We particularly ask that you bless our ministry partner, Toby Raglan, serving with College Golf Fellowship. We ask that you continue to open doors for Toby to preach the gospel on college campuses all throughout Florida, granting him favor with coaches and students. May your word go forth in power through weekly Bible studies and upcoming retreats. We also pray for our brother Hudson Rollman. We give thanks for his wife Chelsea and their presence among us. And we ask God for many years of fruitful and strong ministry. That your word would be planted in the students' lives of Christ church. That they would grow up giving thanks to you and rejoicing in you. Knowing freedom from compromise and the goodness of your grace. And so bless the Romans in their life here and their ministry among us. We pray for all governing authorities, particularly our city council and our mayor, our state legislature and our governor. Pray for our president, our courts, and both houses of Congress, asking that you endow these men and women with wisdom to govern well, guiding our nation in paths of justice and righteousness. Have mercy on them, O God. Direct them to good exercises of power. We pray for those who lead our church, for our pastors, for our elders, and for our deacons. Fill each of them with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of you, that we may all be good stewards of your word and good shepherds within your flock. Help us. Merciful God, you are the God of all comfort. And we pray for those who are sick among us, those who grieve among us, and those who suffer among us today. We particularly remember our sister Sue Forsyth, struggling with intense back pain. We remember Elizabeth Garnett, living with stage four brain cancer. Gar Garganius, also struggling with cancer. Bill Yates, dealing with Parkinson's, and Wayne Noble. We ask you to extend comfort to each of them, reminding them that nothing in all of creation can separate them from your great love in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And Father, we also give thanks to you amidst our sufferings. We also give thanks for the gift of life, especially the new ones on the way. We pray for you to bless Ashley Bauman, Mary Calvert, and Abigail Waddell, and the little ones in their wombs. Give them endurance and good health through their pregnancies. And Father, we remember that our Lord Jesus took up children in his arms and he blessed them. And so we remember the children and youth of this congregation today, asking that you will bless them as they grow up in the knowledge of you. Forgive their sins. Write your law upon their hearts. Grant them to delight in you, finding life and light in Jesus. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.